Hi there, and welcome back to the Energy Sector Heroes podcast. My name is Michelle Fraser, and every week I will speak with incredible people who share their lessons, experiences, and stories from their time spent in the energy sector. Hi there, and welcome back again to this week's episode. If you're new to the show, then please take a second to subscribe and even consider sharing this show with just one other person. This week, I am joined by Phil Black. Phil is an incredible technical director at Warleys. Phil, would you like to introduce yourself, please? Sure. I'm happy to be on the show today, Michelle. As you said, I'm Phil Black. I'm a chemical engineer based out of Houston. I've been working in oil and gas for the past 22 years, working on automation and control, digital transformation, as well as energy transition projects. Most recently, I've been working to develop a training program to really help engineers in oil and gas reframe their project experience for the new challenges that the energy sector is facing. Uh, I'm actually doing a webinar on June 9th, and I put information on that webinar on my LinkedIn profile. But apart from engineering, I've really been exploring my creative side by doing improv comedy. I have part of two troops in Station Theater in Houston, high anxiety, which is very applicable for improv, <laughs> as well as oral tradition. So that's, that's about me in a nutshell, my 30-second intro. No, it sounds amazing. Thank you. So how did you get started in the energy sector? Well, when I graduated in 2001, I had three job offers. I could stay in Kansas City and work for an environmental consulting company, move to Ohio and work for an aerospace company. And then there was a startup in Houston that called me up and asked me if I wanted to come down, which I knew was kind of risky, but I figured, you know, I'm a chemical engineer and Houston has a lot of engineers. So maybe I can take the risk, go to Houston and work with the startup. And if, I, if that goes under, then I'll find another job somewhere in the energy industry. Okay. So what made you choose between the three jobs? So, uh, yeah, really, I, you know, it was 2001 when I graduated. So, you know, the dot, dot, the dot com bubble had kind of popped, but I was thought a startup, you know, there was all these Netscape, all these IPOs, people getting rich. And I was like, oh, if I go work for a startup, maybe I was going to be employee number nine. Maybe I could be a IPO in the oil and gas and go big. So yeah, it was it wasn't a great decision, you know, basis, but it actually turned out really well. I like Houston. I must say I'm from the Midwest and with in Kansas we get, you know, winter time. And in Houston, we have about one week of winter. And I discovered I'm really happy with no winter. Hot weather, I can deal with. <laughs> Winter, not so much. Okay. Okay. So are you happy with the route you took with having three three job offers on the table? Because having three job offers on the table at any point in your career is quite amazing. Yes, I'm very happy. I, I love being in Houston. I really like the salt water. So being down by Galveston is nice. I love going down there just on a Sunday afternoon and you know, sitting by the ocean, getting in the water. I actually actually was very fortunate too in terms of the startup. the The team I worked for was a really good tight knit team. 
that we work together well. And that's honestly one of my personal attributes is is I really like to work for a tight-knit team. I'm, I'm about the people and the, the, I like to do interesting work. And if I can find a place where I'm doing that, then personally, I'm quite happy. So uh, I'm very happy with my decision. Who knows? Being a rocket engineer might have been a completely different path, but I'm I, I'm very happy with my choice. Okay, that's excellent. So who was your role model in your career and why did you find them inspirational? So it's funny. I took a year off from school and worked at Goodyear building tires. And I was an intern, engineering intern. And I started, and here I am, this, you know, a 20-year-old kid walking in this plant. They made big tires. And the average workforce was about early 50s. So here I am, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, coming into this plant, going to be an engineer. And it was a bunch of older people. And yeah, they did. They weren't interested in having a young person with no experience tell them what to do. I, I don't know why, you know, it's. <laughs> but this one older supervisor, his name was Max. He kind of took me under the wing and helped me teach me the ropes and help me understand that maybe people who had experience on the plant had something to offer me. And so he really helped me kind of reset my attitude and learn from them. And by learning from them, they felt valued. They felt like I was listening to them. And then they were more willing to listen to what I said. So he really kind of was my first supervisor. And he really taught me the value of listening to others and not just jumping in and pushing what I wanted to say, what my thoughts were, what my ideas were. So to me, that was an extremely valuable way to kind of help me start off my career in terms of even before I started working officially just as an internship. Okay. Amazing. So what is the most challenging thing about your current role and how do you handle it? So I would say my most challenging thing is right now I've kind of been working to develop something for engineers within the oil and gas sector. I've been an engineer. I've worked in that industry but I really see what I consider are a few gaps in offerings for the people who work in the industry. You know, we have, we're in the midst of the energy transition, trying to figure out how to diversify the energy mix. So it's not going to be just oil and gas or petroleum based products. It's going to be a whole wide mix. There's a lot of people who have experience subsea in the pipelines, in the design of equipment operating under the ocean, drilling the deep wells, that experience is extremely valuable and extremely important. But it's critical that the people who have that experience know and are able to communicate that experience in a way that's applicable to renewables, to wind, to solar, with hydrogen. That's not something that's typically taught. There's, oh, take a class and learn how to do this, but then trying to reframe everything you've done in the past in the light of something different, I found to be extremely hard. And so I'm working to try to address that challenge and teach people kind of what I've been working on in my personal career, moving from working for a big engineering company, being an employee, being, you know, doing within that framework to more of a have some opportunities on the side where I can help others 
develop their careers in the way that they want to do it, in the way that makes them happy, and the way that is personally fulfilling to them. So it's changing my identity from just an employee at a company to now I'm actually building something to help others uh, on my own. Okay. Is that not maybe coming outside your comfort zone then? Yes. Yes. It's fascinating. I'm finding it really (laughs) surprisingly challenging. I've always worked for a company, for someone, you know, but it's amazing when you start thinking about, okay, what do I want to this? uh, What do I want this to look like? I'm working, developing this program with someone else, Jeffrey can, who's been on your podcast before, you know, trying to say, okay, what can we do together? I find it very rewarding to work with other people. Just Mm -hmm. I'm a people person and, you know, to me, two plus two equals five or six or seven. So finding someone who's done something similar, who has the experience also in oil and gas, I think we can both put together a really transformational course for people. And so that's the focus is, is working, not just me in terms of, but working with someone else and then changing my personal identity from employee to you know, co-founder. Okay. That sounds like an interesting journey. Yes. Yes. My life has been full of interesting journeys. I started doing improv about a year and a half ago, and that was just (laughs) way outside my comfort zone as well. Trying to really expand, expand beyond just what I had always done. That's, that's a, I guess that's the phase of my life that right now I've been working for about 22 years. And so I'm ready to really try some new things, some different things, be more experimental, be more playful, find that passion that I have internally and that I definitely had right when I started. But then, you know, just working jobs, it kind of starts becoming the routine. And I'm really trying to disrupt my own life and disrupt my own routine. That way I can really explore the potential for the future in completely unexpected ways. Okay. So you were saying before that you're working on and hosting a webinar on June the 9th. What is that going to be about? It's going to be focusing on helping people work through their personal strengths. So it's not just about project experience. It's about personal strengths, identifying those personal strengths, looking into the future, trying to figure out, you know, in broad strokes, what the future holds. And then matching those strengths and experience for the future. So we've put together a framework to do this for engineers, and we're going to roll it out uh, so people can start preparing themselves for the future they want within the energy transition. So how would you go about uh, identifying your strengths? Because I sometimes get asked that as well from other colleagues I work with. How would you go about doing that? So I've done, you know, I would say a lot of, you know, personality profiles, Myers-Briggs, DISC, those kind of things. Uh, I worked with a coach and she suggested something called the Clifton Gallup Strengths Profile. So I went through that with her and I really like that one because it focuses on like 32 different mm, aspects. And then it works to identify what's the specific strengths. So it's not focusing on, oh, you know, what am I bad at? Or, But it's like, you know, identify your strengths. Everybody has strengths. So once you identify those, you can learn to use those 
for your benefit. I mean, I, I kind of had a sense of what I did well, but I didn't really have a clear sense. And so after working through that assessment with her, I really discovered, oh, these are some things I really am good at and I like to do. And if I can work to craft my career in that direction, then I'm setting myself up for success. I'm not getting stuck in a place where the either the environment doesn't match my personality or the type of work doesn't match my personality. Uh, and then I can really do my best work because when we're excited, when I'm excited, I know I jump into things, go at them full steam, and the output is much better than if I'm just sitting at a desk doing a project because it's a project and it's for a paycheck. So kind of matching the passions with the paycheck, but it's, yeah, I do improv. That's a passion, but there's not a big paycheck in that, you know, so you have to match it professionally as well. Okay. So how would you do that then? Uh, after you find your strengths, uh-huh. then you have to find your, then you have your, per, your bikes in experience. Mm. And with spikes, there's always places where there's aren't spikes. Now, if there's not spikes in that area, you have to decide, do I develop those spikes or mm-hmm. are those areas that need to be maybe filled in with someone else working in an organization going through that? So after you have kind of an assessment of where you are as a person, where your background is, you have to do a look at the industry. So what are the macro trends affecting the industry? Right now, the macro trend I'm interested in, in is the energy transition. So after you find that place, then you move forward and say, how do my skills fit in that, in that area? So it's not a, it's not a, oh, fill out the, fill in the blanks of this worksheet. I would say it's kind of a personal journey you have to go on to say, okay, this is what I'm good at. This is what the industry needs. And these are gaps within the industry that I can fill. So it's going through that process. Okay. Excellent. But that would be quite difficult to do, wouldn't it, by yourself? It would take a long time for someone to 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 realize what their strengths were after going through all that. Yes. I mean, there's there's coaches. I would say there's career coaches, executive coaches that do that. And I worked with a couple. But for me, the challenge was I didn't feel like there was one that really had a good good focus on technical because so much of our work as engineers is working on technical projects. Mm -hmm. How do I take that technical projects I've worked on and translate it into value? And and that's something I still work on actively trying to understand, okay, I've had 22 years in oil and gas. I've done automation and control. I'm not looking to maybe do more automation and control projects, but how do I take the, what I did in the projects and communicate it in a much broader uh, sense? So I worked on data historians. How do I take a data historian? How do I take the IT, OT network intersection? And how do I translate that to something that's much more generally applicable outside automation and control? I think that would be quite hard, actually. It is. It is. <laughs> That's why I say it's not something. It's not something that that is just like oh, you sit down and oh, write it out. I mean, it's 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 for me. It's been I would say the last year and a half, kind of working through this process with Jeffrey, with uh, a coach, and, and really that's what I'm saying is it, it's a gap because there's okay. The, I would say the easy answer is oh. Take a training course. Well, take a training course may give you a skill, but because 
when you're reframing everything you've done, it's almost like you're in a sense changing your identity. You know, I'm not, I I still, when I, when I entered, when I started, what I say, when I started out, my first words, I'm a chemical engineer. That's a core part of my identity. That still is, that will always will be. But right now I'm working to expand that identity into more things. Okay. Well now I'm not just a chemical engineer. Now I'm a co-founder. Oh, I'm also a creative person. I do improv. So those expanding those parts of my brain has been a very, I would say, messy journey. It's been an exciting journey. It's a journey I'm still on, but that process is not a one, two, three process. It's it's, yeah. it's a path, and I and I think you have to, I guess, be at a point in your life where you're ready to go on that path. Maybe it's maybe it's my midlife crisis. I have no idea. <laughs> but anyway, it's the it's the path I'm on right now. Okay. I can appreciate that it would be really hard. I'm also automate automation and control engineer, so that would be yeah. I can appreciate your journey that you're going through. So I so there's and there's not one path for everyone. So I think that's part of the 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 challenge is that this process has a high level of individualization that's needed because it's about working with working with people. Okay, everybody has a different mix. Uh, background, you know, you have upstream, midstream, downstream, you know, you have the different aspects in the engineering. So how do you take those personal, your personal profile, it's working through that personal profile, and then saying, okay, here's the skills that are needed. And we'll work to create a plan to map those skills into what's needed. And if there are gaps, then we'll, you, you can work to fill in those gaps by training. But then also, you have to change your identity. Or, or not change your identity. I don't, I don't like change because it's about expanding your identity because I, I'm still an engineer, but I'm just going to be an engineer and this and this. Okay. Thank you. So I've been asked maybe a couple of times throughout my career for career advice for maybe the younger engineers who maybe want to strike out by themselves, but they're unsure what path to go on because they maybe want to start a business, but they're not really sure what, what ideas they have. How easy is that? What advice would you give to them? Because that is quite a challenging question, actually. Yeah. For someone starting out who wants to develop something, but not sure what, I think the first thing I would do is start start small. Make I, I wouldn't, you don't have to quit your job to do things on the side. I mean, we have a whole side hustle economy, gig economy, find ways to try out things. I mean, as an engineer, I'm not going to necessarily just, oh, go up one day and quit. It's about, okay, are there things I can do on the side? Uh, I worked, uh, I ran a nonprofit for about 10 years while I was working and did training as part of that. And, and during that process was when I learned I love to teach. I love to train. I, I that's to me that's personally fulfilling. So I was able to work with the nonprofit, run the nonprofit, and do training and and discover that passion for training. So I would say there's ways to there's ways to take what you want to do and start trying them in I would say low risk situations. So for me, it was working with the nonprofit, then running it afterwards, because like, oh, well, I enjoy the training. They had some organizational 
challenges due to fundraising. So then I started running it. So, you know, I got, I kind of got part of that experience, not even thinking about it in terms of building it up, but it doesn't have to be always leave your job and only do this. I think you can find things you enjoy doing, find things you want to do and test out the waters in different scenarios so that when you're ready to go out on your own, then you already have some of the background. Of course, you don't have everything. You know, it's impossible to get every single maybe bullet point you need, but you at least have a sense of what you're good at, what you enjoy, and you have some experience actually doing it. So I guess that would be my advice was to start out, find small opportunities where you can test out things and go for it and and have the courage to do it and then accept that if it doesn't work out, then you didn't you didn't lose a whole lot. Then you gained experience no matter if the result was what you thought it was going to be or maybe it turned out differently. Okay. But even if it doesn't turn out how you want it to be, you shouldn't really give up either. You should maybe modify your plans and then start out again. My thoughts on that is... If you start small and it doesn't turn out the way you want, you can learn from that and use that to create a better plan for the future. So a plan is iterative. A plan is iterative. You never get it in the first shot. But if you learn to take what you didn't go well and then add that back into the plan, adjust the plan based on what you learned, then you just kind of keep building and the plan becomes larger and larger and better and better organically as you move along. That's, that's one thing that I had a hard time with was under, I, I'm an engineer. Sometimes flexibility is, is hard for me. And so if it doesn't go according to plan, I start to get worried because, oh my goodness, that's not the plan. But really trying to force myself into a different mindset, which is, all right, this didn't work out. This didn't go how I wanted. Here's what I learned. And now I need to use that to create the next step. Okay. That's really good advice, Ashley. Thank you. So have you ever had any career disasters then? I have, surprisingly. (laughs) I'll start over that again. (laughs) Yes. I would say one of the biggest disasters was I was speaking at a conference I had my slide deck. I had everything ready. I got up on stage at a conference that we were sponsoring, had a big you know, booth at, and my mind went completely blank. I mean, utterly and completely blank. And I got through a 30-minute presentation in five minutes. Oh. It was awful. And no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't remember anything I was going to say. So I just stood up there. My colleagues in the audience were sitting there trying to feed me questions on the monitor to get me talking. And I just was like, "Mm, deer in the headlights, still don't know what to do. And oh my goodness, it it was awful. But, and there were about 500 people there. So I sat down the show or the conference organizer. I mean, he, I remember he was staring at me, glaring at me. He was not happy, (laughs) but you know, that was, I I felt really, I mean, I felt really bad about it personally because I had spent a lot of time preparing the speech, preparing the presentation, and then for it all to go wrong, it was just, it was hard. So I would say that's a, that's been a huge, that was that for me, 
felt like a huge disaster. I so feel, you, yeah. you <laughs> I do. Yeah. I feel your pain actually. That would be horrible actually. Needless to say, I did not get invited to speak at that conference afterwards <laughs> for the next for the next year. <laughs> okay. So how did you actually come back? Did you were you able to come back and produce something out of the conference or Yes. Yes, I continued speaking and basically doubled down on the amount of prep. So I made sure I had it. I had a lot of anxiety, especially the next time, but just trying to burn that information in my head. I did actually continue speaking. I spoke in the Middle East. I spoke in India. I spoke in the UK. So I ended up turning that one around and actually doing you know, continuing to do speaking. Afterwards, I took a professional speaking course to learn the craft. That way, I didn't get on stage and, you know, have a panic attack effectively and, and move on. So, yeah, it was getting back up, doing the training, and keep on speaking. That's the, that's the method I used. Okay. So, what is your advice for anybody who is going to make a big speech and then they maybe forget what they're going to say. Cause that is a huge, that would, that would be, yeah, that would be my, my worst nightmare. I would think. <laughs> my advice would be to, if it happens first speak again, the longer I think you wait before, after you have a, something like that happen, the worse it gets in terms of your own, your own mind kind of starts working against you. Oh, you're, you'll do this again. You know, so the, the quicker you can do another speech, I think the better I did a speech. So the next speech I gave, I think was at a very, it was like at a small conference, just a few people, like almost like a lunch and learn type thing. So do it where the stakes are low. I'm not in front of a big audience. I'm just presenting, you know, a lunch and learn to other people. Definitely get some training. There's a lot of training courses out there that can help you with those types of, you know, problems uh, to do the preparation, learn how to prepare, learn how to rehearse, you know, and then do the rehearsal. So go for low stakes places where you can get your confidence back up uh, okay. going forward. I was going to say, was that your um, first speaking gig then at five, the one, because 500 people is quite, quite a lot of people for the first time. It, it, it was not my first time. That that's what I found very interesting. So I had done, I had started speaking uh, for like uh, project management, small project management groups. I had did I did Toastmasters in college. You know, I, I took the small steps to try to work my way up. I had actually done some speaking at local conferences here in Houston. So I had, you know, stair stepped my way up to larger conferences. Uh, so even when it happened, even for me, it was a surprise. But then afterwards, again, it was kind of almost going back and redoing those stair steps to work on my craft, work on my confidence, you know, and get up, but, but get up there and do it again. Don't let it be, oh, I'm never doing, I'm never speaking again. I think that's the best way to overcome is, is start again, start small and start soon. Okay. No, that's really good advice. So what would you consider your, your zone of geniuses? What are you most good at? <laughs> I've had fun with this one. So my zone of geniuses. I'm a pattern ninja. I'm a resistance whisperer. 
<laughs> and I'm a problem Sherpa. <laughs> Would you like more explanation? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, can you explain what? <laughs> All right. So, and, and this and this actually, I, I'll, I'll give some more pause here. So these three words actually came out of what I did going through the Clifton Strength. You know, I'm good at seeing patterns. That was something that the assessment told me. So I look across a lot of different areas others people see as unrelated. Hmm. And then I look for patterns. I look for underlying principles. And I look for ways to take information from maybe one area and link it to others. So that would be my pattern ninja zone of genius. Another thing that came out of the Clifton Strengths was individualization. So that fits into the resistance whisperer. So I look, especially in terms of disruptive technology, I look and see how that technology will impact the individuals on the project, especially the project managers, because each project manager has a budget, has a scope. He has certain resources. So if you're working in a digital and technology group and you want project managers to adapt a new technology or you want to roll it out, for a project manager, that's a huge risk. So if you can actively work with the PMs or the people affected and show them, okay, this is what, yes, you have to change. Change is hard, but this is the end game. This is where we want to be. And this is how that end game will make your life easier. And then take that and de-risk it for them. Offer them support if things don't go easy. That way, their hump they have to get over to adopt the technology or change is reduced. And then the problem, Sherpa, my personality is such that I'm like, a, when, I, when I find a problem, that's interesting to me. I'm like a pit bull. I'm like, oh, I'm on it and I own it. I'll work on it as hard as I can. If it doesn't go well, I'll take responsibility to fix it, to make it better. And if even if it's a failure, to minimize the failure. So I mean, I just I just attack problems and, and stick on them. So that's the that's the that's my zones of genius. But I, it was great because I for the first time in my life, after doing this assessment. I really started having fun. What am I good at? It's not just, okay, I do this, but what do I do? What, what am I good at and what do I enjoy doing? And so that exercise has really reinvigorated me in terms of getting enthusiastic about what kind of problems I'm working on and what kind of things should I be looking for to do because I both do them well and I enjoy doing them. Okay. No, that's strange. And that is very good traits to have. So I was going to ask you, and I have to ask you this. <laughs> Worley Parsons or Worley, as they're knowing, they're a huge company. I, many, many people I know want to work for them worldwide. Good reputation. So if you were going to hire someone, what do they actually look for? What kind of skills, experience do they actually look for to be successfully hired by, by that company? So I would say right now, Worley is doing a lot of work and pushing the boundaries in terms of redefining what they want to be as a company. 
they're looking at a lot of different strategic areas to define what there is the energy transition and it's creating waves of opportunities for anybody who operates. And so I was working with the carbon capture group, really defining what is carbon capture to world, what's the scope of the opportunity. And then based on all the individual resources, background, expertise, types of project, how is Worley going to play within that market? And so really clarifying that because, you know, carbon capture is huge. It's not just the capture, it's, you know, it's the capture, but then it's the pipeline, then it's the reinjection, And, you know, that pipeline, there's going to be so many new emitters, new sources of CO2 coming from the sources to the pipeline. So there's a huge need for more transport capability, but then there's the coordination. How are you gonna coordinate all those different sources? They're coming on at different pressures, maybe different rates. How do you put all that together and then get it into a place where it's able to be re-injected? Even the re-injection, you know, your injection wells are gonna be operating at a certain temperature, pressure, operating conditions. So there's a huge amount of complexity in just carbon capture. The words are easy, but the process is complex. And, and so working to define, okay, based on Worley's strengths, where is the best place for Worley to play in that market? Okay. That's a really good answer, actually. Okay. I, I realized though, I completely did not answer your question in terms of what, what <laughs> skills. <laughs> <laughs> kind of. In a roundabout way. Yeah, well, that's that's my specialty. <laughs> the roundabout long answers. <laughs> that's my that's my curse as an engineering brain. I think I'm way too many <laughs> pieces. <laughs> yeah, but then okay, then if you were going to interview someone, who what would you look for then? So, my focus is on trying to find people. I would say who have an aspect of creativity. Can they think outside the box? Can they look at a big, new, I would say, poorly defined opportunity in terms of there's a lot of different variables? And can they help focus on identifying the strongest opportunities within those areas? I must say my, my background in looking at patterns has helped me fit into that space. And so if we're hiring for that kind of role, I would look for people who can see patterns. If we're looking for specifically, okay, we need to design an injection well, I would not be that person. So I would look for people who have experience. That's the place where people who are have operated in drilling environments, I think can definitely easily repurpose their skills and background and talk about it in terms of, oh, that's a gap we need. We need someone who knows how to re-inject it or inject the carbon. So we need people with the offshore well drilling experience or onshore drilling experience so we can put into that. So it's a mix of personal and technical. Okay. No, that is a good that is a good answer. So use so so use either one or 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 move the audio around to make it where it gets fine. <laughs> well, use both. It's okay. <laughs> both are excellent answers. So I have to I have to really ask you this. I haven't asked this question for a while, actually. How does your current role compare to your aspirations as a young boy? It's funny. It actually, since I was 
16, 15, 16 years old, I wanted to be an engineer. So being an engineer is actually what I wanted to do for as long as I can remember. So I took math and science in high school. After I graduated, I went to school to be an engineer. Uh, I've been fortunate in that in terms of, I, you know, when I was young, I wanted to be an engineer. My uncle is an engineer. He worked actually on the Cassini spacecraft, the nuclear propulsion for it. And so I don't know. I just always like I idolized my uncle in terms of like, wow, he does such neat things. I I I, I want to do neat things. And so I saw engineering as a way to do fascinating, interesting things, solving problems, figuring things out. So huh. I yeah, I I've, I've been fortunate in that aspect to where I've 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 always kind of known what I wanted to do and been able to do it. Excellent. So what is the hardest question, hardest problem that you've ever had to solve then as an engineer? So it's funny because I've like solving technical problems, but right now what I'm fascinated is on the human aspect of it. So again, it's that resistance to change. I've worked in automation, digitalization, technology. I find that fascinating. I'm like, oh, wow, there's so many opportunities I get sometimes ahead of myself and then I'm a long ways down the path. But then when I go back to talk to the people on the projects or, you know, actually designing the equipment, they're not where I'm at. And so my hardest challenge has been, okay, stepping back and I have all this enthusiasm and passion for technology digital, but I'm working with people with a different background. So solving that for me, solving that human difference, that human how change impacts people to me is actually a fascinating problem that I'm that I'm enjoying solving right now and working on. Okay, good answer. <laughs> you can say it again. <laughs> I will say it again. <laughs> Excellent insight. Good answer. Thank you. So. I have to ask you one final question. If you could turn back time, would you change anything? Oh, that's a fun question. I, I would actually. So I would start doing improv earlier. I really focused on the logical part of my brain exclusively through doing improv. I've discovered there's a whole nother aspect, kind of the back of my brain in terms of the creativity, the emotions. And that to me has unlocked a whole new level of enthusiasm and excitement about me. So I would have definitely started doing something creative much, much earlier. I, I never, I thought, oh, that's art. That's for other people. I'm an engineer. I want to focus on logic, solving problems, learning technical skills. But I really would have started doing something, whether it was painting, drawing, photography, you know, that unlocks a whole different part of the brain that as engineers, I don't think we spend much time exploring. And that just exploring it through improv for me has really unlocked a lot of insights. And, and that connection between that logic and creativity is really opening new doors for myself. Okay, excellent. So do you really think that the improv has really helped you then, especially with your speaking it has. I think, well, I think if I had done improv before I had the big failure on stage, I probably would have been able to <laughs> come up with something more to say. But just in terms of, yes, it has, because with improv, it's about a connection with people. I mean, because if you're on stage talking, 
If you're on stage and you don't know what you're going to say and no one else knows what they're going to say, you have to have a high level trust with everybody in your group. And so building that trust, having the trust that, you know, other people have my back in a completely different way than just, you know, as part of a project really has helped me be more trusting and allow others to help and assist me. I'm kind of a, my personality is, oh, I have to do it all, do it all myself, do it all alone. That improv has really helped me calm down and trust other people. There's other people who do things better than me. I can trust them. I can trust their skills, expertise. I don't have to be worried, but that developing of trust within a group improv has really helped me with that. Okay. I'm going to leave it there because that's excellent advice. That's all the questions I have today. I would like to thank Phil for your time. It's been amazing, actually. That brings us to the end of another episode. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next week. And that's a wrap. That brings us to the end of another episode. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, I'd like to gently encourage you to leave a five-star rating wherever you listen to podcasts and share the show with another person. You can also follow me on LinkedIn or via my website, www.michellefraserconsultancy.com. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.